Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And this is our last episode of 2022. Huzzah! Uh, I know you're going to shoot me down on this, Sugi. Um based on personal predilections that have already been discussed on this podcast. And I know that all is not right with the world, and we've covered a lot of those not right things here on the podcast. But can I just say, compared to earlier years of this podcast, say 2017, 2018, 2019, that this was a decent year? I mean, some good things happened this year, along with the bad things? Like the Uvalde shooting. No! Not no, not like the Uvalde shooting or the Club Q shooting or any of the other horrific shootings that happened this year and that are not good in any way. Uh, we covered all we covered a lot of that, those earlier shootings on a, in our episode with Amy Archer back in June. As we pointed out in that episode, we've done a mass shooting episode almost every year we've been on the air, um, which is incredibly depressing. Uh, but this is the first year that we've been on the air when Congress has passed actual meaningful gun control legislation, which President Biden signed. The BBC called it the most significant gun control law in 30 years. That's not bad. Could it even be good? Uh-huh. Come on. All right, let's just try. It's your turn. What will you remember about this year? Roe was overturned. Okay, yes. Also, okay, fine. Also bad. Bad thing worth remembering but, and we did an episode about that with Shelly uh, Oriah and Kristen Arnett, but Kansas, right next door to my state, voted to reject a proposal that would end abortion rights in their state. It's a very conservative state that did that. And support for abortion rights seemed to have played a huge role in Democratic wins during the midterms. Lots of people kept saying that Biden never won the election. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think you're understanding what I'm asking for here, but yes, that is true. But all of the Trump endorsed, almost all, I think all of the Trump endorsed candidates, particularly in swing states, who claimed that and ran for office this year, got their asses handed to them. A number of election deniers were elected uh, and gas was really expensive. It's low now. I'm just saying, look, there are some bad stories, but at least this year, we have some decent stories to balance them out, which is more than I can say for a lot of those other years. Raphael Warnock is a senator. So is Christian Sinema. God damn it. All right, fine. Truce. 
I'm just saying, all right, you know what? I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again and then we're going to move on to other things. I'm saying for the first time in this podcast history that there is room for celebration at the end of a passing year rather than mere relief that it has ended. Come on, we started in the first year of Trump's presidency. We went through COVID. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. Biden did some good things. He, there's, he passed this incredibly great climate control legislation that's going to start taking effect next year. I have so many responses to that down anyway down the other down the other path two roads diverged in a yellow wood and one was extremely depressing um but I am willing to admit that I do enjoy hearing that Trump is going to have to lawfully turn over his taxes to Congress and that his organization has been found guilty of fraud and that he himself might even get indicted one of these days so what are we going to do with this tiny tiny distant glimmer of light we are going to talk about books, 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 and only books. And we're going to do that with two terrific book people from our parent website, LitHub, which is a terrific book place. Emily Temple is joining us for a second time on the podcast. Emily is the author of the 2020 novel, The Lightness, and the managing editor at Literary Hub. She earned her MFA in fiction from the University of Virginia, where she was a recipient of the Henfield Prize. Uh, Henfield Prize. Her short fiction has appeared in the Colorado Review, Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, Indiana Review, Fairy Tale Review, Sonora Review, Sycamore Review, No Tokens, Territory, and Elsewhere. She lives with her husband and daughter in central New York. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. And Katie Yee. Katie Yee is the associate editor at Literary Hub. She's also currently a Margins Fellow at the Asian American Writers Workshop, uh, one of the most awesome places in New York City, and was a 2021 Center for Fiction slash Susan Camel Emerging Writer Fellow, as well as a 2021 Kundiman Mentorship Lab Fellow. Katie's writing has appeared or is forthcoming in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Epiphany, No Tokens, The Believer, and elsewhere. She lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Katie. It's nice to be here. So this is the sixth year of our show which is a long time, longer than I've ever been directly associated with any publication. And I have to say, it has been a pleasure to work with LitHub all these years. Uh, I love the site. I read it every day. I get the daily newsletter. I do all the stuff, um, which all of you listeners should be doing as well. Um, I love the imagination of the staff, the contributors. And we're going to talk about LitHub's 38 favorite books of the year of 2022, chosen by the staff. But first, what does it mean to be a LitHub favorite book? How would you define the staff of LitHub's literary taste? Is there a LitHub brand? You know, there's a slate take. Is there a LitHub book? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for reading. We appreciate it. Um, but is there a LitHub book? No, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying that the reason I like to frame this list as our favorite books of the year as opposed to our the best books of the year is that I think best books of the year lists can encourage a sort of box checking, a feeling of, oh, we better include this big book that everyone on the internet agreed was great just to cover our bases, even if um, no one on staff actually read it. So instead, with your favorite books, what you're getting are the honest favorites from a group of serious readers with pretty diverse interests and taste profiles. Um, so I'm not sure I could define our overall literary taste except to say it's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Katie, do you have a, anything you want to add? Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a take on this question? 
Oh my God. I would say that I totally agree with what Emily just said. I think there's definitely a lot of overlap in some of our tastes. Like Emily and I both went to like snowy, secluded, like Northeast liberal arts colleges, like very like the secret history. Um, so we, I feel like we kind of both read into that vibe, but truly the, the tastes of the staff run the gamut. Um, I would say that we all appreciate an engaging sentence and, um, something surprising, I think would maybe be the common denominator just because we've all been reading seriously, as Emily said, for, for so long that we always like when we're surprised. So when you all, you all have been doing a version of this list for, for years, and now many of you are working remotely, presumably, and I'm curious about whether the process has changed over the years. Like, did you all sit in a conference room and kind of gab? Or, I mean, the, the favorites are, they have individual bylines. They're, they're sort of individualized picks. In, and so I'm curious about, like, is there conferring? Or do you, do you all sort of, yeah, go to your snowy corners and come up with your list and then meet up? You know, we do it the way that we've always done it in a way, um, you know, just nuts and bolts way in terms of I make everybody claim their books in a Google Doc years ahead of when the blurbs are due and I don't let anybody have overlap. But I think it used to be that we would sit around this tiny office and there would be a couple galleys that we would all pass around. Someone would go home and read it. They would come back and they would say, oh, you guys, this, you know, this book has, you got to read it. Um, and so there would end up being every year a few books that we had all read by the end of the year and that we all liked. Um, and that doesn't really happen anymore because there's just there isn't that passing. So everybody is just kind of on their own following their own threads of of what they're interested in reading um, without. I mean, I guess we we talk a little in Slack about books that we're reading and we like, but it, it's um the, the feeling of reading books throughout the year feels less communal. Yeah, it's interesting. I was having a con- I've had a couple conversations with folks um, about how the culture of reviewing has changed simply because you don't pass your colleagues' desks and see like the books that are on there or sort of have the casual conversation about what people are enjoying. Um, and I was, yeah, it just sort of in the same way that the erasure of casual conversation in other spaces has changed other kinds of offices. I'm sure it has changed book reviewing as well. Um, but, you know, this list uh, assembled in a different, in some ways, the same way and in some ways, different ways than before um, has like incredible range. It crosses genres. It's got historical novels like Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait. You've got Getting Lost, Annie Erno's Diary of Her Affair with a Russian Diplomat. Um, a book that I've never heard of. There's poetry. There's uh, a post-digital, post-capitalist manifesto. There's a lesbian Sasquatch novel called Patricia Wants to Cuddle by Samantha Allen. So out of all of these forms, did you see any overlapping themes or obsessions? What do the best books of 2022 tell us about 2022, if anything? Can you guys explain the year to me through books? (laughs) I don't know if I could explain the year at all, let alone through books. (laughs) Um, that's such a good question. I feel like usually, and we've talked about this before, like there are some trends, like I want to say two years ago, for some reason, like the cannibal novel was very big. Do you guys remember the year like Earthlings came out and like Tender is the Flesh? I want to say that was 2020. I don't know what that says about where we were all at mentally during that time. Um, this year in particular, though, I've been really thrilled to see a lot of 
books by people of color, particularly Asian American writers, um, just being published and a lot on our list this year, I feel like in particular, um, it should probably be no surprise to anyone who's listening to this or to anyone who reads the site that there's sort of been a reckoning in the publishing industry in the past couple of years with regards to the way that it deals with diversity and inclusion. And it's been really nice to see that kind of come, come out in, in the books that are being published and that are being um, like spotlighted this year. And I hope that continues. I, I want to say it's not a trend. I hope it's like ongoing change. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, um, you know, to be fair, I think we've always been better than average in terms of our our diversity of reading at Lit Hub. You know, it's it's always been something that that we've paid special attention to, at least as long as, as I've been there. But yeah, I, I agree that that's sort of exploding across the board in a way that is really awesome to see. Um, I mean, Katie, you said to me recently outside of this that there is no pattern to the year in terms of um, it used to be there were some books that everyone was reading. I mean, this is kind of just what I said before. We all passed around the same book. Um, but, you know, I also put together another list every year, the ultimate best books of the year list in which I go through everybody else's end of year lists and I count up how many books make how many lists. And there's always one or two big winners, books that are just on many more lists than every other book. Uh, last year it was Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain and Patricia Lockwood, no one is talking about this. In 2020, it was The Vanishing Half by a mile. Um, and then in 2019, it was Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys and Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. And, you know, I can always guess before I make the list. Usually I can guess who's going to be on top. You just know who's gotten the most coverage, who's going to be on all the best book lists. You just know. Um, and this year I couldn't really guess. I didn't know. I mean, I, I know which books have gotten some attention. I know which books I've read, I, you know, but it, there weren't these obvious front runners of these are the books that everybody's read, everybody's talking about um, in the same way as they're usually are. So I think the word of the year is goblin mode. So everyone was doing their own thing. <laughs> well, I, I agree with that. That sounds like a, a I, I wonder though, my nomination for the book that's probably on a lot of those lists is going to be the Barbara King Solver, uh, David Copperfield rewrite. I'm forgetting the title right now, but I, I think that'll be on Demon Copperhead. Demon Copperhead. Demon Copperhead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, go ahead. Is somebody going to say something? No, I was gonna okay. say that one's that one's on there, but it's not yeah. the top. <laughs> <laughs> What's the top? I, I I'm wondering about the Escoffery. That one's up there, not the top. <laughs> well, we should all place. You can't our tell us now. what the top is. Are you I'll withholding you. this information? The to- I can tell you the top three are Hernan Diaz's Trust, Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow, 
and Ed Young's An Immense World. Oh, cool. Which yeah. again, right, it's like, oh, sure, those all make sense, but it's like not one of them was the book that just like, not one of them was Brit Benish, Brit Bennett's The Vanishing Half, you know, like that right. just. Well, breaking news, you guys heard it right here for the ultimate books of the year. <laughs> we have not only the favorite books, but the ultimate books. So how do you personally know uh, when a book is special? You know, we've all had this experience and I read for other contests, as, as we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, but I'm curious to know what it feels like to you when a book announces itself, you know, as something that something that you want to put on a list or make sure it gets attention. Do you know right away? Is it something that sinks in later? You sometimes think a book is terrible and then decide that it's actually good or great. Um, I, I do this sometimes. Um, also, Emily, when you're compiling this list, do people ever send in recommendations that you disagree with? Do you say no? <laughs> Um, people definitely submit recommendations I disagree with, but I never say no. It would defeat okay. the purpose. Other people get to have their own opinions, even if they're wrong. Um, again, Katie and I... <laughs> Katie and I... That's it. We're changing the tagline of this show. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would never tell them. Uh, I feel safe saying this because Katie and I, as she said, we do have similar tastes, so she's never wrong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but as for when I know a book is special, I mean, it's different with every book, I'd say. Sometimes it's voice in the first line. Sometimes it's a moment in the end. Um, for me, it's usually something in the language that will turn a key and and make me realize that the writer has something really going on. I mean, your question actually made me think of this incredible book that I read a few years ago called um, The Sky is Yours by Chandler Klang Smith. And I was reading this book and it's like a absurdist literary fantasy. There's dragons circling in the sky of a destroyed city. And it is so silly in many ways. There's a lot of silly elements. And I kept putting the book down. I would read something absolutely ridiculous. I would put the book down and say, it's too silly. I can't read this book. And I would walk away <laughs> and I would come back an hour later, almost like creep up on it. <laughs> like, I'll just, I'll just, I'll read, I'll read a little more, a little more. And then I would just read and I would put it, I'd be like, nope, it's too ridiculous. I cannot be spending my time reading this. It's too ridiculous. I, I, no, I, can't, I gotta go. I gotta go. And I just, I, would, I did this all the way through this like massive 500 page book because I just kept being so entertained. Even it was just like, it's like watching my crazy ex-girlfriend where you're just like, this is too corny. I can't watch it. But it was, and in the end, I loved it. And I looked back on it and think, oh, this is a writer who just, did whatever she wanted, who did something totally different from everybody else. And in the end, it really, really works. But I fought it all the way through. And in the end, I think, what a special book. Well, you sold me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how come we've never talked about this book it's before? It's so good. I don't know. It, it, it was so under the radar. I, I don't know why. I wrote about it on Lit Hub a lot after I read it, but nobody noticed. You write about a lot of good books, I know. to be fair. I know. Um, but that's such a good question, and that's such a good recommendation. I feel like I, 
I feel like for me, it almost works the opposite. Like back when we were in the office, I would keep going with the book, even though I wasn't sure if I liked it just because I was like, everyone else loves it. Like, I don't know. Um, and I feel like now that I'm kind of just in my sad apartment by myself all the time, I trust my own taste more, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So like, if I don't like something, I don't feel the like water cooler conversation pressure to like keep going. Um, I can kind of just put it down, which has been a revelation. Okay, so which books... What is the face you're which, making, Emily? Which books that we all like did you hate? <laughs> oh, this is a dangerous <laughs> question. I don't know. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I hated it, but I will say that I've thought a lot about my year of rest and relaxation after reading it and being like, would I have liked it as much if I didn't like talk to you guys about it every day as I was reading it? You know, how much of my love for that book was it really my love for you guys? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. so interesting to think about the social aspects of why we like books. That's very, that's very lovely. Okay, I'm curious to get, as we're, we're going down these avenues of what we, what we hate, what is more personal than what we hate or what we put down. Um, but, you know, we're obviously fans of books that appear on this list. And also some of these folks have been guests on the podcast. And so I just wanted to mentioned some of those. And, and one of those books is Sequoia Nagamatsu's um, How High We Go in the Dark. And we we spoke to him at the Unbound Book Festival about that. And Katie, that was one of your picks. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you first encountered that book and, and why you chose it. Yes, I could talk forever about this book. My friends are sick of hearing about it. I will not shut up about it. Um, it's crazy to think that it came out this year. I think it was in the beginning of 2022. Um, the Asian American Writers Workshop actually asked me to moderate a conversation with Sequoia um, and with the incredible writer Kim Fu, who also had a story collection come out earlier this year. Also a very good book. Um, so I read it kind of in preparation for this conversation. And this book blew me away, you guys. Um, stop me if I'm talking about it for too long. Uh, but it starts kind of with this like man, he's a grieving father. He's gone to this like Arctic dig where his daughter has died um, and he kind of is like trying to explore and see kind of what she's what she saw before she perished. Um, and as he's there, this like Arctic plague starts to come out of the permafrost because of global warming. Um, so very like eerie, very like pandemic year. Uh, Sequoia was like, I wrote this like way before the pandemic and now I'm afraid no one's going to read it because they're just going to be like, we're tired of the story. Um, but anyway, the, the Arctic plague comes out and then the, what follows is sort of like a collection of like linked stories. Um, you kind of get to drop into these different families' lives and see how the plague has affected all of them. It's one of the darkest, most fucked up books. Can I curse on this yep, podcast? Yeah, you can. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> one of the darkest, most fucked up books I've ever read. There's like an amusement park for terminally ill children. Um, there's a talking pig that's going to break your heart. There's like a weird stint in purgatory. Um, it's just the most inventive book I've read in such a long time. And it's so dark, but it's also so hopeful. And I feel like what was so fun about this one is like kind of the roller coaster ride of like, he brings you to the most devastating low you'll ever feel while reading. And then he like gives you this like shining beacon of hope in the next passage. It's incredible. Everyone needs to read this book. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? 
It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, Emily, uh, your turn. Uh, you recommend Mark Haber's novel, St. Sebastian's Abyss. Uh, when you wrote about the, the book at LitHub earlier, earlier this year, you called it the most niche book recommendation I have ever made. Why? Well, I had a baby earlier this year, and despite what I read on LitHub about reading while feeding a newborn, I found it very difficult to read anything for months after giving birth. Uh, my husband and I were just emotionally and physically fried. Like, all we could do was rewatch bad movies from the late 90s. I mean, we, we watched all the Austin Powers movies. Okay. Like, that's where we were. <laughs> you can get canceled just for that. that I don't know that you really no should be saying on. that on the podcast. <laughs> all right. I mean, we, I guess, I, I guess uh, they didn't age that well. <laughs> but they were, it was like gruel for your mind. I do have this experience all the time. You'll find this out later on when your kids get older, when you show the movies that you thought were good when you were young, and you're like, oh, that was, boy, that's not a funny <laughs> joke anymore. You know what movie does so. age well? Big Daddy. We watched that one. It's so, so okay, one you're right. Sandler classic that still slaps. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, this is to say we were, we were, in a bad place. Um, you know what? Actually, Brooklyn Nine-Nine really did help. My that's, son that's likes a Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Solid. Yeah. Oh, it's just so easy. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> it's like, it's not so stupid that you hate yourself, but it's not so smart enough that you have to think about it at all. You know, it's like, this it's is great. Blur by, the blur by dream <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We haven't even gotten to the book yet. Um, I know. I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> bad shows to watch when you're really tired. So instead, I read this other book, um, this book that I liked. <laughs> so instead, Mark so Haber's like, oh, my thank you very much for this introduction to my great book. <laughs> I know. He's, he's like, I worked so hard and she's saying it was marginally better than Austin Powers. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I just, I had like lost myself entirely. Let's put it that way. And finally, my in-laws came to town. It was a beautiful day. And they took the baby for a walk. And they said, you know, just do something for yourself. And I had ordered all these books from Bookshop, you know, very optimistically, thinking I was going to read during my maternity leave. And um, I was just like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to sit on the porch. It's beautiful. And I'm going to have a nice coffee. I'm going to read. And so I chose St. Sebastian's Abyss. And it just turned out to be the right book at exactly the right time. It was short enough to be manageable for me. It was sharp and witty enough to make me laugh. I laughed immediately when I read this book. And it was also like um, experimental and intellectual enough that it just, this is so corny, but it made me feel like myself again for just a little while, like, you know, it, it was exactly the kind of book that made me fall in love with reading. And I just hadn't felt that in such a long time. I hear I had been spending my time watching Austin Powers. 
Um, it's really the most delicious satire about art and criticism and friendship. And I just, I really recommend it to all new parents who are writers or artists and also anyone else who would like to go on a fun ride. St. Sebastian's Abyss, the book that will allow you to stop watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, what book recommendation <laughs> yeah. from your colleagues surprised you the most? What one made you the most curious or jealous? Let's start with Katie. <laughs> I would say most curious is definitely the recommendation that Emily literally just gave. Um, I've been meaning to read that one for a while, and I feel like this was a good reminder for that. Um, I always feel like that, when would... you're doing those lists, you know, you you want you want to get the popular book, but you also want to find the nugget that no one else knows that everyone's like, oh, you found that book and I didn't know about it. You know, like, and that's sort of a victory in, in, in these sort of lists. Definitely. I also feel like I always look to Johnny for my like nonfiction, like nature recommendations. I feel like those are books that I like always want to read in my heart and soul and then never quite get to, but I think his recommendation of Elder Flora sounded very good. The Modern History of Ancient Trees. That's Johnny Diamond, who's uh, editor-in-chief of Lit Hub. Um, all right, Emily, what do you got? Listen, I know the staff well enough at this point that I'm almost never surprised by their choices. <laughs> I... Especially not jealous of them? Okay, fine. Not jealous of them. <laughs> Sometimes I can guess what they're going to pick before they Another book me. from this guy? Damn. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's just that I know everybody's taste really well. I mean, it's, it actually plays out more even more when we're doing our uh, preview lists because I just know, I know whatever, you know, I, I send out the list and I let people choose what they're going to write about. And I just know I could put everybody's initials next to everything. I, I know what everyone's going to pick and what everyone's interested in. Um, I always feel like it's a mad dash to the spreadsheet. I always feel like I scroll and I'm like, oh, new Kelly Link story collection. And then I'm like, Emily's already initialed I know that's it. unfortunate for you, Katie, that I make the spreadsheet. So I choose all of our books before you can get there. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, but okay. yes, I, you know, for me, when I uh, get everyone's recommendations in, I'm just hoping that someone will convince me to read one of to read a book with their blurb because that's the point of this list after all it's you know we're just shouting from the rooftops um and they often do uh this year eliza really sold me on patricia wants to cuddle <laughs> that would be the mm -hmm. aforementioned lesbian sasquatch novel and she wrote i was convinced by that i <laughs> yeah. certainly not heard of that book but i'm gonna try it out also got a great cover um she i think she wrote mm -hmm. it's just so enjoyable and who doesn't like to enjoy things you know I like to enjoy things. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I noticed a number of books um, that offered a critique of capitalism in one way or another. And I'm thinking of My Three Dads by Jessica Crispin, Fight Like Hell by Kim Kelly, and The Bond King by Mary Childs. So I kind of want to ask a, a chicken or egg question here. Do you think that groupings of books like this show up because an issue like that is in the air? Or do they get chosen for lists like this because readers are curious about the issue? I mean, I think both, which is sort of an unsatisfying answer to a chicken or egg question. But, you know, the issues in the air, the books are being published and publicized this year and people are interested. And again, this list is just a reflection of what our editors are actually reading. And we may be fairly well informed, but we're just readers like 
anyone else and subject to the winds of the discourse. So, you know, it, it, it's sort of a a mirror to the the landscape, at least if you are a certain kind of reader and thinker, I'd say. I noticed that, uh, oh, Katie, did you have something you wanted to add there? I was going to say, I'm interested in the ways that um, these topics also kind of showed up in fiction this year. Like, I'm thinking specifically of Sarah Thinkham Matthews's All This Could Be Different, which, if you guys haven't read it, highly recommend. It's also very much like a critique of, like, the constraints of capitalism, um, and it's very good. Uh, okay, good. Thanks. Yes, I haven't read that. I will, I'll put that on my list. Uh, my list is extremely long. I feel like Suki and I, well, it's just the same thing. Like we have, we read, we read for this show, right? So that like takes up a tremendous amount of my reading time, you know, although a number of the books that are on your list happen to have been people on this show. So I feel like that speaks well. Um, I noticed that Lidha put out another list at year's end, this one listing the best reviewed fiction of 2022. Uh, Katie, uh, you were formerly an associate editor at Bookmarks, which describes itself as the rotten tomatoes of books, meaning... One of the many things that they do there is track and tabulate book reviews. What's the difference between a best book of the, I mean, a favorite book of the year, which is what you're, the list we're discussing here, and a best reviewed book of the year? Do good reviews always or ever tell which books are, in fact, the best? I think they sometimes do. I think they obviously don't tell the whole story. I feel like, like Emily was saying, kind of like when a book gets good coverage, like good coverage begets good coverage, like then it's kind of just like a snowball effect. Um, and that kind of means that a lot of really great books, especially books from like smaller indie presses kind of get lost in the white noise. Um, so I would say that the favorite books list is fun because I feel like it's sort of our chance to spotlight books that don't necessarily get a lot of review coverage. Um, you know, small press books, works in translation, um, that kind of thing. And especially not, I feel like I'm always like the feel like I have a lot of everything I'm saying sounds kind of depressing, but like especially with the closure of like book forum um, and just like a lot of publications cutting back on their books coverage. Um, I'd be interested to see how the literary criticism landscape continues yeah. on. Um, that was one of the most depressing things of the week, honestly. Um, so on a more uplifting note, we would like to close by having you both read short passages from a book that you or someone else chose to be on the favorite books list and to talk about why that passage was memorable for you in the sea of books that you've both been reading. Uh, Emily, I wonder if we can ask you to start. Sure. I'm just going to continue proselytizing for Mark Haber. <laughs> um, and I will read the first two sections of this book. And you'll either totally understand everything that I've been saying or you'll think I'm crazy. But I hope you will understand. <laughs> okay. After reading the email from Schmidt, I knew I would have to fly to see Schmidt on his deathbed in Berlin. After rereading and reflecting on the more emphatic passages of his relatively short email, I was convinced I'd have to visit Schmidt one last time as he lay, in his words, dying in Berlin. Although he hadn't spoken in years, the email, sparse and cruel, hadn't surprised me. It felt suspended, as if it had been written years before and was merely waiting for me to open and read it. The tone of Schmidt's email hadn't surprised me either. Schmidt had been my best friend and confidant, my spiritual companion in art, art history and art criticism, our interests drawn to the Northern Renaissance, specifically Dutch mannerism, and, more specifically than that, the painting St. Sebastian's Abyss by Count Hugo Beckenbauer. St. Sebastian's Abyss, the focus of both our early studies and later our entire careers. 
Schmidt's, sorry, Schmidt's guidance and affection and later our deep friendship were founded on our mutual love and adoration for St. Sebastian's Abyss, at the time a little-known work by a little-known artist, hence all the more moving. We'd taken countless trips to Barcelona, where St. Sebastian's Abyss was, and still is, on display along with Beckenbauer's two lesser works. In Barcelona, we beheld St. Sebastian's Abyss in person, the first time to make sure the obsession, the obsession we shared was authentic, and every visit thereafter because of the obsession itself. I read and reread Schmidt's relatively short email, going as far as printing it so I could underline specific passages during the long flight to Berlin. I printed three copies, in fact, two for the flight and one to tuck in my luggage in the event of some mild misfortune, spilled coffee, a tear, pages forgotten in the restroom, and so on. I remembered I could always print a copy at the hotel in Berlin and for a moment felt silly, but this feeling passed because it would be absurd not to print something as vital as the deathbed missive from my spiritual and artistic confidant when I had the means at my disposal. Thus I printed three copies to reread and underline, fold and unfold, disregard entirely if I felt like it, the choice was mine, the point being to have a choice, for I foresaw the next twelve hours as a torment. Soaring over the Atlantic, condemned to the solitude of my own thoughts, no desire to read anything but the email, wholly occupied with studying, analyzing, construing, and likely misconstruing all nine pages of Schmidt's relatively terse email. An email that, by the time we descended over Berlin, would no doubt be dog-eared and worn, pondered over, and vigorously scrutinized, because I hadn't spoken to my best friend, my be- I'm gonna st- just, by the time we descended over Berlin, would no doubt be dog-eared and worn, pondered over and vigorously scrutinized because I hadn't spoken to my best friend, meaning Schmidt, in over 10 years, 13 to be exact, and Schmidt being Schmidt. The less he said or wrote, the more he revealed about art, art criticism, our once brilliant devotion to each other and our subsequent falling out, and naturally, the most sublime painting in human history, St. Sebastian's Abyss. (laughs) So... I mean, Thank you. You read that very, very well. I mean, it, it sounded like you knew what you thought the author's voice, the narrator's voice sounded like in your head. I mean, I have, who knows? I could be wrong. Mark Haber, write me. But um, it's, <laughs> you know, it's so funny to me in this, um, it, the way that it winds itself up in this circular, repetitive fashion, this, it's just from the jump. You can just see that he's um, coiling this obsession story around itself and it becomes absurd instantly. You know, I'm such a big fan of, of you know, I call them like accumulation stories and Bartholomé um, or even Mrs. Bridge, like stories where it just you add small things and small things and small things until it becomes this huge, insane monstrosity. Um, And it just, just that opening, I just, it really moved me. Cause as I said, in the moment I was, I was transported um, to a time when I too might have, obsessed over the relatively ter- relatively terse nine-page email. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, you can see his obsession coming out in the way he's printing it out multiple times. He's imagining how he might lose it and this and all that sort of stuff is fantastic. Um, okay. It reminds me of... Um, what was that video game, Emily, that you talked about in the office? Oh, God. That, like, accumulation video game with the oh. world? What oh. was that? Oh, um, Katamari. Kama- Katamari Damashii. <laughs> Yes. Um, 
which if no one has played is insanely okay i gotta calm down um katamari (laughs) is you basically start with a tiny ball and you roll up tiny things like um uh, a seed or a tack and then as you roll more things up your ball gets bigger because it's all the things get stuck to it and then you just keep rolling bigger and bigger things until you, the goal is that you roll up the world that's a video game this is this is emily's taste in a yeah. nutshell 100 percent, 100 percent. recommend <laughs> all right katie it's your turn what did, what did you choose to read from Okay, I'm going to read from the beginning of Juliet Suka's The Swimmers. Um, I guess I'll just dive in. Pun very much <laughs> intended. Um, the, sorry. <laughs> the pool is located deep underground in a large cavernous chamber many feet beneath the streets of our town. Some of us come here because we are injured and need to heal. We suffer from bad backs, fallen arches, shattered dreams, broken hearts, anxiety, melancholia, anhedonia, the usual above-ground afflictions. Others of us are employed at the college nearby and prefer to take our lunch breaks down below, in the waters, far away from the harsh glares of our colleagues and screens. Some of us come here to escape, if only for an hour, our disappointing marriages on land. Many of us live in the neighborhood and simply love to swim. One of us, Alice, a retired lab technician now in the early stages of dementia, comes here because she always has. And even though she may not remember the combination to her locker or where she put her towel, the moment she slips into the water, she knows what to do. Her stroke is long and fluid, her kick is strong, her mind clear. Up there, she says, I'm just another little old lady. But down here, at the pool, I'm myself. Most days at the pool, we are able to leave our troubles on land behind. Failed painters become elegant breaststrokers. Untenured professors slice shark-like through the water with breathtaking speed. The newly divorced HR manager grabs a faded red styrofoam board and kicks with impunity. The downsized ad man floats otter-like on his back as he stares up at the clouds on the painted pale blue ceiling, thinking for the first time all day long of nothing. Let it go. Warriors stop worrying, bereaved widows cease to grieve, out-of-work actors unable to get traction above ground glide effortlessly down the fast lane in their element at last. I've arrived. And for a brief interlude, we are at home in the world. Bad moods lift, ticks disappear, memories reawaken, migraines dissolve, and slowly, slowly, the chatter in our minds begins to subside as stroke after stroke, length after length, we swim. And when we are finished with our laps, we hoist ourselves up out of the pool, dripping and refreshed, our equilibrium restored, ready to face another day on land. Um, But I just, I love this book so much. I feel like Juliette Tsuka's voice is something to sink into. Um, She captures that like collective we so well, and I feel like I rarely see it done, but she does it um, in, in all of her novels, I think. Um, and yeah, it kind of, it really spoke to me about the mundanity and routine of the past couple of years also. I have, a uh, what that made me think of was I, before the pandemic, I used to go to the gym at my university where I teach at University of Missouri, Kansas City and, and sit in the sauna after I ran and that was at the, on the pool deck. And so I developed all these friends that would be there and I would talk to like Fran, who was a tennis player in Florida and has bad knees, you know, and. I went back just recently for the first time since the pandemic and there was Fran and there was all the other people, but you know, you know, swimming around in the pool and trying to forget their day. That was beautiful. 
Well, um, Katie and Emily, thank you both so much for these these recommendations um, and for taking the time to join us. And listeners, don't miss uh, this great list, LitHub's favorite books of 2022. And we encourage you to go check out Emily and Katie's excellent writing, which we will be linking to in our show notes. So don't don't miss that on LitHub's website. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for having us. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>